Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Believe in Betting Chicago. Happy Monday. And you know what that means. It's time for Last Dance React Pod time. My name is Joey Christopoulos. Thank you so much. This episode today is brought to you by betonline.ag. And you guys know my hosts. They've been with me for every single one of these breakdowns of these episodes. Today's episode seven. We're also going to get into eight in a different pod. But let's get into our co-host. He always begins with hard work, and it always ends with champagne. Aaron Hagel, how are you, buddy? <laughs> What's up, Joey? How you doing, brother? I'm doing great, man. Those episodes were amazing, and we're going to dive into them headfirst. But also, let's say hello to my good friend. He's made Bill Cartwright cry more than once in his life. Mike Choi. <laughs> Way to go, Craig. <laughs> Way to go, Craig. Uh, so, guys, let's just jump right in. I like to do uh, I like to what we did last week. I just want to hear you guys' initial general thoughts your emotions on the episode seven from last night who wants to go first mike hop in joey i am uh, so fired up and ready to go to talk about these two episodes um <laughs> typically typically i have like you know one or two paragraphs on each episode uh, that i take while i'm watching uh these two i have four pages of notes so uh <laughs> be ready to go long be ready to go long <laughs> we're going deep people Higgs, thoughts on the episodes last night yeah, I think these were my two favorites so far, for sure. Like, I, I just – I could have kept on, you know, just, just watching that for hours and hours, just have it keep on going just on those two episodes only. Super devastated that this thing isn't going to go on for 12 more hours. Um, completely jacked up. We're going to get into it. Drew, my first tears, my first tears of the podcast. We'll get into when that happened. And uh, honestly, I was – I was floating on air, uh, had to towel off more than usual, had maybe an extra cocktail than I usually did watching that thing last night. And then afterwards, me and my wife, we are, were watching Succession. And uh, I don't know if you guys have ever watched the show before, but the opening credits are extremely long. The theme song is about like two, two and a half minutes. So once you start binging a show, you start kind of skipping through the intro of the show. And I introed it, skip, 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 press play exactly when the episode started. And my wife turned to me and she goes, that was so lucky. And I'm like, no, honey, I'm just locked in tonight. She's like, bullshit. That was just a really <laughs> lucky play. And I was like, no, I've been watching MJ all night. I was stroking it. I was just, I had the touch. I had the touch last night on the opening credits. So let's just jump in right away with something that we've talked about on the, uh, the podcast previously about Scotty Burrell's narrative arc. We finally saw it coming to fruition for those who cannot see because they're listening to a podcast. Mike Choi has a beautiful mural right now on his Zoom screen <laughs> of Scotty Burrell sprinting back down the floor and Jordan scowling at him on the other side of him, on the other side of his shoulder. It looks like the angel and the devil right now on your shoulder. But uh, I just want to hear your initial thoughts on uh, Scotty Burrell. Like some of the trash talk was amazing. I loved his personality, the way that he kept taking it. And then, yeah, in game three of that first round, really the only game that he had any significance in whatever, came up huge with a 9 of 11 game for 23 points. Big time Scotty Burrell back into the Bulls lexicon uh, of our legacy, of the legacy talk. Go ahead, Mike. I mean, is it a coincidence that he scored 23 points in that game? I mean, that's pretty <laughs> apropos. Um, but, yeah, for me, like, Scotty, he was the MVP of this, this episode because – I think about how much Jordan wrote him and, and rightfully so. And, and then I think about like, think about all the amazing players that Jordan got in the head of. Right. And then this guy is just like cool, calm and collected. Like he could not break Scotty Burrell down. He's just like the nicest guy. And by all accounts, yeah, even according to the director, like Scotty's just like, he's, he's on the verge of being so nice that he's almost dorky. I mean, 
that's how amazing of a guy he is. And what this episode kind of began to uh, rise up as a focal point is that, so is Michael Jordan basically the college history teacher that you never wish that you got back in college? But after you did go through his class, everyone else was better off for it. Because to a man, Bill Wennington, Will Purdue, Judd Bushler, Steve Kerr, Scott Burrell, all of them, to a man, yes, we were terrified of him. Yes, he was an asshole. But in the end, are their lives better off for it? Absolutely. And do they regret any single moment or any single thing that MJ ever said to them? No, they don't. Why? Well, A, they're champions. But B, that is just the kind of leader that MJ was and now all this stuff about him, the man, the myth, the legend, you know, we're getting beyond the point now where it's, did you know he scored 63 against Boston? Have you ever heard of the shot before? We're getting way past all that stuff. And now we're really getting into the truth of how amazing this dude was. And I got to be honest, this guy's been, MJ's been my hero my whole life. And I don't know how it's even possible, but I think that is even being built upon even more in depth with all these little details of just the way that he carried himself and the way that he carried himself at that time leading into those championships. What do you think, Hakes? Uh, for me personally, I, this might've been my least favorite segment out of the whole, the whole thing so far. Um, I didn't give a shit about Scott Burrell back then. I don't give a shit about Scott Burrell now. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I would have been fine with like a minute or two about how he wrote him in practice, showed some of that, showing Burrell's reaction, showing Jordan's reaction, and, and move on. I just, for me, I, it was just way too long. Well, I guess it, they had to turn something into it, right? Because it seems like a lot of the, the candid moments that they caught are between MJ talking with Scott Burrell. Like, it's, what is kind of funny and what's interesting is about the things that we really haven't seen yet is how many moments have we actually seen Scotty and Michael talking and conversing with each other off the court so far? I would say not too much. It's really sort of Jordan leading the charge, talking to all these other guys. And then you'll get these montage clips of Scotty with the arm around that same teammate, you know, playing good cop, bad cop. And I agree with you that I find, I find it really interesting, but I do agree with you that, uh, I'm one of the biggest Bulls fans in the world, and Scott Burrell sort of slipped through the cracks of my consciousness just a little bit. And his and his, him being a consequential piece of these championship runs, I think, is minimal uh, at best. But I do think, I do think at the same time, the fact that he is one of the few guys that that took a different path, right? He took a different route. Some guys shrunk under Jordan. Some guys got into Jordan's face, which we'll get into, like Steve Kerr. Uh, other guys tried to outplay him. But as Michael Jordan said, Scotty Burrell, he's just such a nice guy. <laughs> you know? And I can tell you, I can relate to that. Go ahead, Mike. No, yeah, I agree with Aaron. I think probably, yeah, we spent a little bit too much time on Scotty. And especially considering the fact that, like, you know, that 23 uh, points that he scored, I think it was against the Nets. Was it against the Nets? It was um, against the Nets. He shot 9 for 11 from the field. And Jordan actually scored 38 in that game. Yeah. And he was 16 of 22 from the field. So he did pretty right. good for himself too. Exactly. But it wasn't like it was like a game-winning kind of situation that Scotty won the game or anything like that. So, yeah, it was a little overplayed. I think probably one of the reasons they did it, though, was we actually got to see concrete proof of Jordan going hard on these guys, right? Because a lot of these other times it's stories, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of these recounts. This was actual footage of him, like really like, even like when he's on the plane talking about, yeah, Scotty, you know, you don't uh, you go out drinking and womanizing all the time. Like it was, it was kind of that concrete proof that like, yeah, Jordan really rode these guys. 
Um, but then, uh, Joey, I do want to push back on you. Maybe this will kind of, we can talk back later down the road. Um, actually, kind of one of the biggest things I had issue with was kind of how Jordan framed this whole thing about this as being his way. You know, it is a way, and it did prove to be obviously successful. But there were other ways, because especially there was that interview with Scotty. It was the year Jordan was out where he basically alluded to, yeah, the team chemistry is a lot better this year. So, I mean, there are different ways that you can go about it. Uh, Jordan's way definitely proved results, but there's different ways. And we can talk about that as we kind of dive deeper. Um, I, I completely agree that in terms of like the leadership aspect, there's always different ways to skin the cat, right? I think what it is, is what I find interesting is this is kind of information that we already sort of understood that he was, you know, the ultimate, uh, you know, in terms of cracking the whip and pushing his guys and among athletes, he was maybe one of the, the hardest dudes to perhaps ever play with in a team sport setting. I think that's definitely debatable. And while I can't necessarily agree, because let's be honest, you guys know me very well. That's not how I would necessarily do that. You know, I probably would have more of the Scotty Pippen routine of like positive reinforcement. Um, you know what I mean? Teaching moments. Uh, I'd be probably a little more of the Phil Jackson handing out the books on the bus. But I do think it's really interesting that Jordan has such a clear, a clear crystallized like view of how and why he went about it. Um, I think he does allude to in moments of maybe looking back and being like, you know, maybe I was a little harsh because I was having a bad day or whatever or frustrated. Sure, that's always possible. But I think at the end of the day, for him, it was just he made this decision of, if it's almost like he's not even talking about basketball. He's like, if you're going to play my sport that I call basketball, we play it a completely different way. And for whatever reason, you know, that was the way that he went about it. And we're going to get into this in a second, because we're going to talk about MJ and his dad and MJ and his brothers in the way that he grew up. But I mean, it's not too dissimilar. I think from his childhood where he does say with Scott Burrell was all he wanted to do was try and convince Scott Burrell that he wanted to fight him and try and get him into <laughs> fights, try and get him to the point where his personality would say enough is enough. Um, and he, and he freely admitted that he conscientiously went out there and tried to do that. And I think we're just kind of getting it on the record of, you know, everything that we thought is true. That's how he did feel. That's what he was trying to do at the time. And um, I agree with you that, I mean, for better or for worse, you know, did it work? Hell yeah, it did. Is it the right thing to do? Maybe not in every single situation. Um, Higgs, did you, what are your general thoughts on like, I don't know, MJ's leadership or was there anything that you yeah. last night that maybe changed the way that how you felt about him or? Well, there's, I mean, there's a couple of things. One, you know, I think he kind of, he, he talks about it, but you know, <laughs> he couldn't help the way he was. I don't think he made a conscious effort to think, oh, okay, I'm going to ride these guys so they do this, this, and this. I'm going to talk to this person. So that, that's just who he is, dude. He's, you know, he's the ultimate competitor. That, that was his leadership style. That's not, like you said, that's not your style. That probably wouldn't be my style or Troy's or anybody else, Scotty. That's how Michael did it. He got results, right? Six championships. And like you said, all those guys that he rode, Bunnington, uh, Kerr, whoever, and like you said earlier, all of their lives have changed for the better. They are all legends now because they were all on three championship teams with Michael. So, yeah, in the heat of the moment, yeah, it sucks. We all know guys like that who, you know, they challenge you and they want you to challenge them back. I don't like guys like that. Those skills guys are, you know, usually like bully-type guys, and Jordan was a, was a bully. And so I think what's uh, – oh, sorry, go ahead. 
No, 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 no. Go ahead. I was just going to just wrap up just by saying that's who he was. He couldn't change it, and, and, and it worked. Well, I, I think to your point, Choi, what's really interesting about it is, you know, at the end of the day, you know, Jordan took a gamble that obviously paid off in spades, right? And I think maybe what you're getting at is what could be a very interesting story about, you know, you know, rest in peace Kobe's legacy or to a further extension, LeBron's legacy. Because for years and years and years, you know, Kobe became that bad teammate. He became the guy that would, you know, and it seemed like he kind of switched gears a couple times in his career. And they went ahead and they won championships. I would be interesting to see if 10 or 15 years from now, his teammates feel the same way that they do about what he did to them back in the day. Same way to buy extension to LeBron. You know, with LeBron, you know, in those heat days, he definitely seemed to have these clicks, you know what I mean? And the clicks ran about seven, eight, nine, ten guys deep. Well, that wasn't necessarily every single person on the team. And you haven't really, you know, LeBron's relationship with coaches. I think 10 or 15 years from now, we're really going to finally figure out whether he was correct in his leadership style. You know, granted, he won a couple of titles along the way. Could he have won more? We'll never know. But the validation of all this is basically Wennington, Kerr, Purdue, everybody by a man being like, he was a jerk and we hated it, but it worked and I'm glad it happened. You know what I mean? Not, not to simplify, but I think that sort of validates what we would find to be a questionable leadership strategy. Hop in, Mike. Yeah, I mean, uh, Higgs definitely nailed it. Like that, that is Michael Jordan in a nutshell, right? He's so got the blinders on that he only sees that it's even possible to do it one way. And that's where I kind of like was – you know, and again, I, I thought it was great because he was so frank and obviously he got so emotional at the end of that episode. But the two things that I had real issue with was uh, that these, uh, this idea that like Michael, you know, for good or bad was a little tone deaf. Like, you know, the line where it kind of sounds right on paper where he goes, you know, uh, I didn't ask those guys to do anything I wouldn't do. But the point is, you're Michael Jordan. You are like literally one of the best athletes in like modern civilization. So these guys can't do what you can do, you know, this level. And that's probably, probably part of the reason why he hasn't been that successful as like, you know, whether it's as a president or owner of a basketball operation, because he kind of thinks that everyone should operate on my level. And then the other thing that I really wanted to push back on what he said, um, you know, part of that, uh, uh, his, his description of, of why he is that way. He kind of mentioned this thing like, you know, these guys haven't endured what I've endured. I've earned this right. And, and to me, that was so toned up because it's like, you don't think that you know, your teammates, just as human beings, much less as basketball players, have endured things, have endured struggle in their life. You know, Tony Kukoc grew up in a war zone. Steve Kerr, his father, also got killed by a terrorist. You know, Scotty Pippen, his, you know, father and brother, they were crippled. You know, uh, uh, Pippen Luke, Longley, Luke Longley was immigrating yeah. from Australia. <laughs> so no, it's just it's true a, though you know what i mean no it is he moved to a different continent and it that, had you know what i'm saying i'm saying yeah. that that couldn't have been easy <laughs> but i mean just in terms of yeah overall just to wrap it up like just there was a little bit of tone deafness to me from jordan and just like not realizing that you know these other guys have put in the work too yeah so just uh piggyback off of what Choi was saying you know like his teammates not only did they go through personal things that made it tough but think about just the basketball aspect Jordan was naturally talented. Yes, of course he worked hard. But when he got drafted, he was the number three pick in the draft. When was Judd Bushler drafted? Luke Longley, Steve Kerr. Think about the journey those guys had to have just to get to that NBA level. 
and Jordan's talking about, oh, I had to go. Yeah, so anyway, I just totally agree with Troy. It was, it was tone deaf and it's kind of silly even now to think like, oh, I had it way harder than those guys. And he did to a certain extent, the media and all that shit. I'm just talking about life and, and basketball. Yeah, I can actually, I agree with both of you guys completely. It was a very clumsy way of phrasing it. And on top of that, the way that the editing kind of backed it up also sort of made it seem a little bit clunkier in retrospect because all the guys, all the points you guys just made are completely correct. And I, I, I want to believe deep down inside that what he was basically saying was they had never endured what I endured to become a champion. Um, which a lot of athletes talk about all the time, that final step, that, that, last, uh, that last climb up the mount to get to the very top of the mountain is different from anything else that any other athlete's been through before. We've kind of heard that been you know, talked about before with other athletes. So I sort of feel like he was going for that, but the words and the way that it came out definitely made it seem like that all these dudes were cake eaters their whole lives. And uh, they were totally fine just, like, cashing their checks and playing basketball, which couldn't be probably be further from the truth. I think maybe Jordan was sort of getting at, like, they just don't know what that final push looks like, and I'm the one that's got to give it to them. Go ahead, Choi. Well, I have a question for you guys. Um, that, like, kind of that we talked about, that emotion at the end to uh, end the episode, um, I definitely think is real. I definitely think it was raw. But I was curious, in your guys' opinion, was he getting emotional because he was starting to get regretful of how he was or do you think he was emotional because it was kind of this idea that like how do you guys not get it how do you guys not understand that it's the passion and the drive that i need these guys to also emulate uh i'll grab i'll grab it first i i'm going with the former on that to be honest with you i feel like that he felt so deeply about something and sometimes when you care about something so much maybe you'll act or present yourself in a way that when hindsight Perhaps, I don't know if you regret it, but people still give you a hard time about to the point where now you feel this sort of sense of guilt that, you know, sometimes the way that you just are isn't necessarily the most malicious thing in the world, but the way that you just are is just the way that it comes across and you can still hurt people whether you even know it or not. And I think for him to continuously answer questions about what a jerk he was um, for a guy who is perhaps one of the most famous people on the planet probably can count the closest friends that he has in his life with one hand. Um, and even maybe half of those friends aren't as close as he thinks they are because he's Michael Jordan. And they're trying to get something out of him and for him to constantly, you know, defend himself for something that he was so passionate about. I think that's what kind of made him emotional. I I'm with you, Troy. I, I think there was a sense of, I think I'm going to go with guilt over regret of feeling like he's hurt people in a certain way, but, but darn it, we got it done. You know what I mean? We, we, I, I dragged you across the finish line. I'm sorry I, I got you hurt along the way. But guess what, man? I had to drag you. And now look where we are. I got six rings on my fingers. And why do I have to keep answering this? And maybe that's where the emotion is. I don't know. What do you think, Higgs? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, actually. Um, I think the, the, the second part that Joey's talking about is him being, you know, are you kidding me? I pushed you guys. We won six championships. and you're call me an asshole and then the other part of that is like what you just said like you know he, he can't help who he is but i'm sure that he's still a human being and at some small level everybody wants to be liked so i'm sure he he yeah like he said i don't think he has regrets how it turned out maybe you know i don't know he feels a little bit guilty about maybe he could have been a little bit nicer but <laughs> i think overall he's just more like I, I can't believe you guys are still calling me an asshole after we won six championships. 
And in a strange way, and I think we're going to get into it right now, you know, he, he lost his father along the way. And for him personally, uh, this isn't like that for everyone out there in the world, but for him personally, his relationship with his father was really, really, really close. And in many ways, you just have to think about, you know, they don't go into the documentary, but you're lying to yourself if you don't think that some of the things that Jordan has manifested in his competitiveness did not come from his father or did not come from his brothers or his family unit, right? Like it would be silly to think that that is impossible. So for him to try and perhaps even emulate or take some of the things that his father learned, pass them over to the way that he does his business on the court, that also can kind of buy in, I'm into what you said, Hags, a little bit of like, I put food on the table. I worked so hard and, 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 you, and you're going to hate me for that. Like, you know what I mean? I kept, I brought you up and I let you go out of the house and you walked out a three-time champion, Judd Bushler, and you're going to call me an asshole. You know what I mean? I think that there's a little bit of that in there. And um, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I just think it's human. And I just think that's what's so interesting and fascinating about it. And I thought that's why, um, you know, I'm glad you brought it up about him getting so emotional in there, because I think in that moment when he explains it like that, I think it says a lot about, um, I think it says a lot about him and who he is and what's important to him. And, and Michael Jordan, we are learning has principles. And for a guy who we've known as this guy who will sell any piece of merchandise on the planet earth. And for a guy who's so popular and amazing and all the gambling stories and all this other stuff. I mean, this guy has seemed like hard rock principles about certain things in life and those may never change, you know, and that's who he is. And that's the person that he is now. Um, I want to hop into, I want to get into the whole stretch, the, the retirement, MJ's dad, the baseball, Pippin taking charge. I want to kind of do all that in one big chunk. First, we got to do a quick read from our sponsor, betonline.ag, you guys. Look, we all know no NBA, no NHL, no MLB, but you might be thinking there's nothing to bet on, right? Well, uh, au contraire, mon ami. BetOnline has thousands of places to wager on, including their online casino and poker and blackjack. There was UFC fights this weekend, you guys. You could have gotten in on that action at betonline.ag. So go to betonline.ag now. Use our promo code MYPOD100. You can place a bet down on American Idol, Esports, The Election, Survivor. They have a $750,000 poker series right now. You just got to use MYPOD100, M-Y-P-O-D-100, and they will give you a welcome bonus on your very first deposit. Betonline.ag, where the players go to win. Check it out today. Back to the pod right now. Choi, hop on in. Well, that's a, actually a great segue because I, I kind of want to propose a couple of uh, prop bets um, leading into these last two episodes. So, because uh, this is Believe Betting Chicago, right, Joey? It sure is. Um, so, my first one for this episode, what, uh, what would you place the odds at, Joey, that, uh, and I think this is such an obvious question, at least to me, that Donna Summers, The Last Dance, will appear by the time we get through episode <laughs> 10? I'm, I mean, I, I'm laying five to one odds. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, honestly, I think it's more like two to three to one uh, because every single week uh, by around Friday or Saturday, uh, we, and let's be honest, during these times right now, it's having a hard time keeping track of the days. But my wife, Mara, will occasionally go like, what day is it? I'm like, oh, today's Friday or Saturday, honey. She goes, oh, the weekend. And I go, you know what that means? Last dance. Oh, You're right. Dance. Is it too I mean, obvious? I'm, I'm singing. Is it, it too obvious to it's, be used? It's too obvious. But at the same time, I think it is the perfect period of the sentence, right? Because let's be real. This pod is going to end on a happy note. 
This pod's going to end very cool. Hopefully it's like cut with some bloopers, some Scotty Burrell bloopers uh, while the song's going on. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a strong bet. I mean, I don't know if you can really win so much on the back end, but I think you can definitely cash in on that bet if you do that. Higgs, what do you think? It's kind of, I mean, if it died, I'd be surprised if it didn't. So yeah, yeah. We got to put some money on this bad boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like Bill Wennington snapping a towel on Judd Bushler as he scurries across the locker room to last dance. <laughs> you got any others, Choi? Well, I, I do, but I want to save those to the oh, next okay. one because save, we got, save, we got some save. good ones. So yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So here's, uh, here's kind of what I want to talk about, you guys. I kind of want to keep it all into one space, and we're going to sort of start it off like this. So obviously the passing of MJ's father um, leads into him not only just considering retirement because he says he was considering it even before that time, but really cementing that idea and him walking away from the Bulls. At that point, he then goes off and plays baseball. We do the whole baseball montage. The whole Jordan Rides the Bus documentary is a fantastic documentary for those who haven't seen it that want a little bit extra on that particular period of time. And then Scotty's Bulls become one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference. Scotty Pippen becomes this amazing leader. He becomes MVP of the All-Star Game, all leading up to that shot against New York and Tony Kukoc. So how I want to start it is basically... And if you want, we could start with you, Higgs. I kind of want to just start with what do you remember as a child at that time? What are some of the vivid memories that, memories that you have from that time of, you know, his retirement, watching basketball without him, and then maybe a couple of things that you didn't know uh, during that stretch of time? Because it's such an important part of his legacy. Yeah, well, um, starting with that last question, the one thing that I was surprised about was the fact that he was talking about retiring a year earlier than he did. I had no idea. I, I, I had never heard that information before. And it's kind of crazy to think how everything would have turned out if he had done that. You and know, it makes, it makes sense or? that he wanted to beat Bird and Magic. The only reason why oh, he came yeah, back, totally. right, was to get the third one. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, well, like with, with his dad's murder and all that, I mean, yeah, that, I, that was – I just remember being that. It's such a weird, creepy – time I mean, because he wasn't like oh his dad got murdered he was missing you know so it was like a three-week manhunt of trying to find him and then they found him you know killed and all that stuff real quick i do have a positive james jordan story though his father james jordan um back in i think it was junior high there was uh, like a like a g league basketball team i forgot they were called chicago something and jordan's little brother his brother larry jordan was on the team so it was like their first game of the season, this huge hoopla. Larry Jordan's playing. Michael shows up. Uh, Dolores and James Jordan show up. They're in a box. They get a standing ovation. It was packed. I go to take a leak at some point. I'm in the urinal. I turn next to me. Who's there? James Jordan taking a leak next to me. And I was like, holy <laughs> shit. I'm taking a piss next to Jordan's dad. I was freaking out, man. So I didn't say anything to him because I was standing next to him taking a leak. But that was, my, that was my positive James Jordan story. I mean, did you peek over and measure him up? Did you do a measuring? No. I think I was too short at that time. Otherwise, I would have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh, Mike, what do you remember from that point in your life? Your reaction to that as like a kid and maybe a couple of things that you didn't, uh, you didn't realize about that particular stretch in his time. We call that the dark, the dark years. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole Jordan father's murder thing was so surreal. Because, I mean, up until that point, and I'm sure obviously things must have happened to other athletes, but, you know, th that was kind of unheard of. I don't really recall a situation like that that had ever come to light before. So that was, like, really just, like, so surreal and devastating. 
Um, so I can't, I can't even imagine how that would mess with anybody's psyche, much less the most public person in the world. Um, but uh, the things that really struck out to me, because like, and you kind of mentioned the uh, 30 for 30 doc on his minor league days, uh, a couple of things uh, struck out to, uh, stuck out to me. Um, one, I didn't, it didn't really occur to me that he started at double A, you know, because of uh, the need for like a, a better facilities for the media presence. And that made me think like, you know, even the number one pick prospects, they still start at rookie ball. They still start at low ball. So it's like the fact that he kind of had a start that much higher, it's like, oh, I mean, you know, even though his numbers weren't that, still that great, it's kind of like, wow, he still like started at a higher level of baseball than the best prospects in baseball. And then the uh, final thing that kind of dawned on me, we're all White Sox fans as well, was the fact that Terry Francona was his manager, a guy who is uh, – Oh, Hall of Famer caliber manager, World Series winning manager. And the thing that struck out to me last night was that, like, how did we let this guy go from the organization? How did he not manage the White Sox at some point? I mean, was Terry Bevington and Jerry, Jerry Manuel that Jerry much Bevington. better? <laughs> Terry Bevington. And we were recording uh, Cito Gaston as well at the time, who ended up retiring and never came back to the dugout ever again. Um, yeah, a whiff. A whiff for the ages on uh, on failing to see the the potential in Tito. The big one, the big ones for me was the ones that I didn't realize were um, I completely forgot and blanked that Jordan started with a 13 game hitting streak, um, and at one point was hitting 327 because I'm sure that there was a lot of people at that point was like, okay, well, is he going to be up in the major leagues in a month? Is this even possible? Um, so I totally forgot about that. Um, I do always remember that, like, you know, he stole 30 bases. He drove in 50 runs that year. And I also remember he kind of ended up finishing with a bit of a hot streak. Like, getting to 202 was a bit more of a struggle than they made it out in the documentary. I think he was, like, in the 180s at one point later in the season. So he had to kind of turn it up a little bit just to get to that 200 number. In terms of the retirement, I mean, personally, I I was at that White Sox game. That game one uh, against the Blue Jays. Um, not a fun memory for White Sox fans because the Blue Jays, Paul Molitor included, just absolutely shredded us in that series. But I went to that game, and I'll never forget leaving the ballpark with my dad after a White Sox loss. We were bummed already. And you just heard from people about 10 feet, uh, 10 feet behind us as we're all making our trek back to the cars. Do you hear the news? Do you hear the news? Do you hear the news? Yeah, MJ's done. MJ's done. Turn around. Excuse me, can you repeat that again? Yeah, MJ said that he's going to retire because he threw out the first pitch in the game. He's going to retire uh, tomorrow morning. And it was almost just like, I mean, if it was raining hard, all of a sudden it started raining poop. Like, I don't know, it was just like, it was a double, it was a double whammy of absolute epic proportions. And I'll forget, uh, never forget that next morning, waking up early, crying all day, not going to school. Uh, because MJ, MJ retired it was like on like a Wednesday or a Thursday something like that and uh yeah it just really just crushed crushed my little dreams and at the time I truly believed him that he would never ever ever come back when he said that I have fulfilled everything that I ever wanted in the game and I'm tired and I'm happy and, and I just remember he was smiling during the whole thing during these retirement uh you know announcements usually you get a lot of tears and like i'm gonna miss the game you're gonna get the brett Favre uh retirement speech but not mj you know he seemed to be completely at peace and and smiling about it and i was just uh, and it was just taken away and i just never thought it was coming back and all that stuff kind of really hit me again last night watching that pod and then he goes off and plays baseball and then you've got the chicago bulls team that was actually really damn good and really fun to watch that year Mike, go ahead. 
Well, I was also thinking because the other thing that I didn't realize that they brought up was the biggest MVP possibly for that second three-peat is the fact that Major League Baseball went on strike. And then because he stepped away because he didn't want to play with any replacement players. So the whole idea that like, had that not been a strike, how much longer would he have pursued baseball? Probably, I would, I would assume probably quite a bit. So yeah, that might've been the best thing that ever happened to the Chicago Bulls was that strike. And on top of that, the White Sox were having an unbelievable year and were the odds on favorite to make the World Series and represent the American League that season. And Frank Thomas was on pace to hit over 60 home runs. And there was a lot of things going on right now that would have made for a really interesting baseball season, not even including the fact that Michael Jordan could have eventually been involved at some point in 94 and 95. Pretty incredible stuff. So Jordan's off playing baseball. I want to get into a little bit about Scottie Pippen, the Scottie Pippen-led Bulls that season. Still had Horace Grant, but brought in, you know, Steve Kerr, had Bill Wennington, some of those players. I just, I mean, we've talked about it before. I mean, that season by itself, I know it ends in a way that completely tarnishes Scottie's legacy, which we'll get to in a second. But honestly, that one season is really, truly the, I mean, that is the moment of greatness for Scottie, what he was able to do with that team. And... I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I got a bone to pick with that series, uh, what they did in the documentary. How do you show that Scottie Pippen season without showing that bullshit phantom Hugh Holland's call uh, on Hubert Davis that completely changed the series for good? Also on top of that, that was at the height of Phil Jackson's, um, you know, subtly sending messages to the referees through the media phase. I do feel like they left a little bit of meat on the bone there during that era. Am I wrong? Go ahead, Mike. Uh, you guys are probably going to hate me for this next comment, but uh, I knew we were probably going to get into this. So I watched that play probably a dozen times. And I will say, I mean, did Hugh Collins probably miss a call? Yeah. But I mean, if you watch that play, Nine times out of ten, I think that's going to get called a foul. How dare you? It was like it was like, it was like scraping his elbow uh, in the last seconds of the game. So you've got the whole mantra of you don't call, you don't end the game on a foul call. Uh, you know, we didn't have instant replay back then. I'm sure no one was had 2020 LASIK surgery back there in the 90s. Hugh Hollins couldn't see shit. Come on, he got hosed. He got hosed, Mike. <laughs> Higgs, what do you remember that from that season and just, you know, that, that Scotty team in general? And yeah, I thought the, I thought the, uh, the filmmaker did a, did a pretty good job of showing like a, kind of like a little montage of what the team was like without Michael. You know, they showed that Scotty was really, you know, a facilitator, a distributor, showing that team ball that basketball purists love. Um, and, you know, they talked to the teammates, just them saying that, you know, Scotty's a different kind of guy than Michael. I'm sure, you know, it was a huge – breath of fresh air that Michael wasn't there walking into practice knowing you're not going to get the shit kicked out of you verbally every single day is probably a great feeling so as much as they probably missed Michael and maybe in the back of their minds they thought you know maybe we can't win a championship but hey we're defending champs we still got Scotty let's see what happens we still got Phil um, you know they fell short you know the, the Hugh Hounds call that you're talking about against the Knicks I didn't expect them to, to beat the Knicks anyway I thought for, for, for not having Mike on the team, they – I mean, shit, man. You got to commend them for that. They did, a, they, they, they did about as good as they could have done. It definitely had that feeling that season of, the, wow, they got this far. Like, you know, a little pat on the back. I think in that section too as well, I think it's important to also bring up uh, – giving some love to Tony Kukoc, right? Uh, kind of an unsung hero in the 
the Bulls lore, the fairy tale that is Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And I had almost sort of forgot it kind of jogged my memory a little bit about how clutch he was that first season he was on the team. He was always a dude that was able to hit big time shots, but it, he showed in the beginning of his career. He was able to do that right off the bat. And I always remember Tony Kukoc personally for, especially in those last three championship years, you know, the Bulls would kind of be struggling. The other thing that's kind of really surprised me right now is just how low scoring these games are. You know, when, when Jordan, Jordan drops 45 in a game, you kind of forgot that, oh, yeah, the score is 78 to 79. Um, but, you know, for Tony, like when we'd be struggling on offense and, you know, Ron Harper's clanking up three-pointers left and right, Tony was always really great. He had that knack for coming in and, you know, just kind of getting two or three buckets in a row just kind of scoring six points, scoring eight points a little bit, sort of giving us a little bit of a jump and some juice. And I think Tony definitely deserves a lot of credit. You know, is he the same as the three amigos in those last three championship teams? No, but he's definitely in the team picture of the most important guys and a big dude in Chicago and Chicago Bulls history. Go ahead, Mike. Well, and I just want to point out that think about all the hype that surrounded him years and years before he even got to the Bulls. Think about all the hype about the Jordan Pippen matchup with Tony in the Olympics so, like, he was so set up to fail, and right out of the gate, he was great for the Bulls. I mean, he lived up to the hype. He lived up to everything that they were hoping he would come over to be, and he, he proved it. So I think that also gets lost in the shuffle, considering, you know, all these, you know, top-notch prospects who don't ever live up to the billing. He did. We also have a great um, Exhibit B case point in Chicago Bulls history. A certain man named Nikolai Miritich uh, was drafted – and for several years played in the European leagues, and we were sold the same bill of goods that we were being sold about Tony Kukoc at the time, about how he was this, uh, you know, how he could stretch the floor. He was a different kind of scorer, how, you know, if his skills work out a certain way, he could have those, the Euro-style uh, excellence and talent of Dirk Nowitzki. Clearly, he came over. That really didn't happen, um, you know, and I guess Andres Nocioni is kind of the middle ground of that. Uh, of a guy that came over but was a professional right off the bat and actually did something and contributed where, you know, Miritich, I think, struggled right out of the gate, never had the shot that was supposedly what he had all along. And I think you're right. Tony exceeded expectations on that front. Go ahead, Higgs. Yeah, I mean, you know, Tony was one of the, you know, first European guys to come over, not just a European guy, but, you know, one of those smooth, lanky passer shooters you know not physically strong or anything like that but just a baller and unfortunately well I mean I guess fortunately he won three championships with the Bulls but he kind of came out what 10-15 years too early if he had come out 10-15 years later holy shit man I mean that's what every great team point. wants great point you know it's just and, and once again fucking Jerry Krause dude that guy was way ahead of the curve he was always scouting European dudes Back when that wasn't cool to do and everyone thought he was crazy, telling everybody, hey, this guy Tony Kukoc is awesome. He's the best player in Europe. Okay, okay, okay. And then he comes and he helps the Bulls win three championships. And like you said, he's not – he wasn't one of the three amigos. But man, he was a very close number four. And I will say personally, I was not a huge Tony Kukoc fan back in the day. And looking at his stuff now and looking at his stats and what he did, I'm like, man, I was totally wrong about this guy. And I think other Bulls fans were as well. Fun comparison. Just imagine if Kukoc was on a team with Luka Doncic right now. And his mom. Yeah. (laughs) This has been your weekend. This has been your weekend to just, I don't know. Guys, I look, I, you know, we're all quarantining right now. So I don't know Mike Choi's Google history right now, but I'm just pretty sure 
that has something to do with Luka Doncic's mom because there's been an awakening. There's been an awakening going on with him. She's a beautiful woman. What can we say? Dolores Jordan's a beautiful woman. <laughs> While we're at a it. A lot of hot basketball moms, I guess. Out there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a segment for another time. Uh, I think we're going to end up with episode seven pod. I just want to hear your guys' thoughts, feelings of how you felt back then and how you still feel now to this day about Scotty sitting out those last 1.8 seconds. I got to be honest, still to this day, has not aged very well. Still incredibly hard to watch. And I go through the exact same mental process I went through at that time when I was a kid. It was, you know, can Scotty step up? Yes, Scotty can. Scotty was amazing that season. I think Scotty put up like a 24-8-8 that year. I mentioned it before. He scored 29 points in the All-Star game, was the MVP, was the toast of the town, was almost the MVP of the league. And then in the, in the moment that we needed him the most, selfishly sat down and would not come into the game. I just want to hear your guys' thoughts about how you felt then, how you feel now. Choi, go ahead. Well, you know, the thing that really shocked me was, like, after Tony hit that shot, it looked like they lost. That's how dejected everybody was that Scotty did that. Like, that, what, that blew my mind. Like, it literally looked like they lost that game. Um, point number two, uh, you know, obviously that's kind of a huge, you know, dark spot on his career. But could you imagine if Tony didn't hit that shot? how much he would have been vilified. I mean, I, I, I mean, the best thing that ever happened to Scotty was that Tony hit that shot. And then finally, the thing that just blew my mind away, that was to this day, Scotty said in a current day interview, I, basically, I wouldn't do it again. Yeah, I would I do it the same was, way. I thought weird. that was so weird, man. I'm very, very surprised he said that as well. Because really, that's really the only stain on his whole career. I guess you can say maybe – you know, the foot surgery and waiting, but whatever. I don't really care about that. And it just sucks because 99.9% .9 of what this guy did was fucking awesome. And the one thing that he did bad was bad. And they're still obviously talking about it 20, 25 years later. But, yeah, it's super weird that he, did, he, he doesn't regret that. Bizarre. Yeah, you can wrap your head around the migraines. You can wrap your head around the bad back. And sometimes, you know, let's be honest, it's in the box score. If you look it up, he had a couple of games in the NBA finals in those last couple of championships where he was kind of a no-show because he was hurt. You know, he just wasn't at the, you know, it wasn't at the peak of his athleticism um, at the time physically. And, you know, you can excuse even like the chair throwing under the court incident or the demanding to be traded and all this other stuff. But, but man, yeah, to, Looking at it now, it still looks terrible. It still feels terrible. It was completely the wrong thing to do. Every single person on the team did not seem to really mince words that they did not enjoy that. No one seemed to have any issue or problem telling everyone exactly what happened after that game. Bill Cartwright crying, people flipping out, apologizing, and all that stuff. And Steve Kerr had a really diplomatic way of explaining it. Was he was like, you got to understand that we loved Scotty. Scotty was one of the best teammates we ever had. And to have him betray us like that was so, was so terrible. And that is a thousand percent correct. And then for Scotty to go ahead and say that he would have made the same decision again. Why? What, you know what I mean? Like, how did that, where does, where does he stick up for himself? Where is anyone on team Scotty on this particular stance of what he did in that moment? Even if he didn't get the ball in that last second situation, get your ass on the court and set a pick or throw a good pass to Scotty. You know what I mean? Like that pass wasn't easy, dude. Like we need so you know, I mean, like, we needed to execute a play in that moment. Really crazy stuff. And still to this day, unfortunately, 
is one of the the darker moments in Chicago sports history and honestly something that Scotty will never ever be able to run away from. And it's a shame. It really is. And 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 I felt so bad for Tony. The guy hits a huge playoff game winner and no one's really happy. It's, yeah, it's, Troy, you nailed it on the head. Like it, it was a whole big like he hit the shot, but at the same time, like the game's over, but everyone's being like, okay, well now what's next? You know, you saw the way Phil walked off the court. You saw some of the guys like Everyone. leave the court. You know, obviously you hear the story about Bill Cartwright crying in tears about how he was let down and betrayed. And, um, and uh, yeah, I had never seen someone, a team steal, um, you know, defeat or whatever, victory from the jaws of defeat before, but want to get off the court away from that game as quick as possible to be able to deal with something that obviously was going on and, you know, I, I don't think I can say that they lost the series after that point because I'm with you guys. I don't know if they were talented enough to win the title or talented enough even to beat that Knicks team. When they lost, I thought they gave it a nice nice college try. It was like, oh, look at a, look how far they got without Mike. Um, but at the same time, you sort of do ask yourself the question, if that hadn't happened, could the momentum have helped them steal a game or two more? You know, they still lost in seven. I mean, it was a very, very close series. It could have gone either way. really kind of makes you ask. Uh, what could have happened there? And unfortunately, when they did come back that next season, they didn't play very well. And they were a 500 team. And they seemed to be kind of, you know, they had lost that momentum, lost that juju, a little bit of a listlessness. And maybe that had something to do with them no longer fully following Scotty as a leader, no matter what happened in any circumstance. And maybe that was starting to run thin already. So that when Mike came back, maybe that was the breath of fresh air that they needed. It's tough to say, but it's a tough moment for Scotty. He's one of the greatest players of all time, for sure. I did see something real quick that Dennis Rodman said today or this week that uh, Scotty Pippen was better than LeBron James. Uh, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, this is a Chicago Bulls podcast, and uh, you know we're definitely uh, we definitely have a lot of Vaseline on our bodies right now talking about MJ. But uh, I'm not going to go that far. Uh, LeBron's a pretty damn good player still, and wasn't as good as Scotty. Sorry about that. I think that's going to do it for episode seven, you guys. This was good. We got this one. Episode seven is a monster. So if you guys enjoyed listening to this one right now, make sure you just click right above you right there because episode eight is coming at you right now. This was Believe in Betting Chicago. My name is Joey Christopoulos with Mike Choi and Heron Hagel. Coming up right now after this, episode eight, the return, the failure, the rise. Back into glory. Coming at you with the Last Dance documentary React Pods. This is Believe in Betting Chicago. Thanks for listening, you guys. Check you out soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.